Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Gorgon by Clark Ashton Smith Yet it is less the horror than the grace which turns the gazer's spirit into stone. Shelley I have no reason to expect that any one will believe my story. If it were another's tale, probably I should not feel inclined to give it credence myself. I tell it herewith, hoping that the mere act of narration, the mere shaping of this macabre daymare adventure into words, will in some slight measure serve to relieve my mind of its execrable burden. There have been times when only a hair's breadth has intervened betwixt myself and the seething devil-ridden world of madness. For the hideous knowledge, the horror-blackened memories which I have carried so long, were never meant to be borne by the human intellect. A singular confession, no doubt, for one who has always been a connoisseur of horrors. The deadly, the malign and baleful things that lurk in the labyrinth of existence have held for me a fascination no less potent than unholy. I have sought them out, and looked upon them as one who sees the fatal eyes of the basilisk in a mirror, or as a savant who handles corrosive poisons in his laboratory with mask and gloves. Never did they have for me the least hint of personal menace, since I viewed them with the most impersonal detachment. I have investigated many clues of the spectral, the ghastly, the bizarre, and many mazes of terror from which others would have recoiled with caution or trepidation. But now I could wish that there were one lure which I had not followed, one labyrinth which my curiosity had not explored. More incredible than all else, perhaps, is the very fact that the thing occurred in twentieth-century London. The sheer anachronism and fabulosity of the happening has made me doubt the verities of time and space, and ever since then I have been as one adrift on starless seas of confusion or roaming through unmapped dimensions. Never have I been quite able to reorient myself, to be altogether sure that I have not gone astray in other centuries, in other lands than those declared by the chronology and geography of the present. I have continual need of modern crowds, of glaring lights, of laughter and clangor and tumult to reassure me and always I am afraid that such things are only an insubstantial barrier, that behind them lies the realm of ancient horror and immemorial malignity of which I have had this one abominable glimpse. And always it seems to me that the veil will dissolve at any moment, and leave me face to face with an ultimate fear. There is no need to detail the events that brought me to London. It should be enough to say that I had endured a great grief, the death of the only woman whom I had loved. I travelled as others have done, to forget, to seek distraction among the novelties of foreign scenes, and I tarried long in London because its grey and mist-enfolded vastness, its ever-varying throngs, its inexhaustible maze of thoroughfares and lanes and houses, were somehow akin to oblivion itself and offered more of refuge from my sorrow than brighter cities had given. I do not know how many weeks or months I lingered in London. Time meant little to me, 
except as an ordeal to be undergone, and I recked not of its disposal. It is hard to remember what I did or where I went, for all things were blurred in a negligible monotone. However, my meeting with the old man is clear as any present impression, and perhaps clearer. Among the faint recollections of that period, it is etched as with some black acid. I cannot recall the name of the street on which I saw him, but it was not far from the Strand, and was full of a late afternoon crowd, beneath a heaven of high fog, through which the sun had not penetrated for days or weeks. I was strolling idly along, amid hurrying faces and figures that meant no more to me than the featureless heavens or the uniform shops. My thoughts were idle, empty, immaterial, and in those days, since I had been brought face to face with an all-too-real horror, I had relinquished my search for the darker mysteries of existence. I was without forewarning, without anticipation of anything but the daily drabness of the London streets and people. Then— from that anonymous welter of humanity, the man stood before me with the terrifying suddenness of an apparition, and I could not have sworn from which direction he had come. He was not unusual in frame or stature, apart from the erectness with which he carried himself, notwithstanding his extreme and manifest age. Nor were his garments uncommon, aside from the fact that they too were excessively old, and seemed to exhale an air of greater antiquity than was warranted even by their cut and fabric. It was not these, but the man's visage, which electrified all my drowsy faculties into a fascinated and awestruck attention. With the mortal pallor of his deeply wrinkled features like graven ivory, with his long curling hair and beard that were white as moon-touched vapour, with his eyes that glowed in their hollow sockets like the coals of demon fires in underworld caverns, you would have made a living model for Charon, the boatman who ferries the dead of Hades across the ebon silence of the Styx. He seemed to have stepped from an age and land of classic mythology into the teeming turmoil of that London street, and the strange impression which he made upon me was in no wise modified by his abilements. I paid so little attention to these, that I could not remember their details afterward, though I think that their predominant colour was a black that had begun to assume the green of time, and suggested the plumage of some sinister bird. My astonishment at the appearance of this singular old man was increased, when I saw that no one else in the throng seemed to notice anything unusual or peculiar about him but that all were hastening on their way with no more at most than the off-hand scrutiny which one would give to some aged beggar. As for me, I had paused in my strolling, petrified with an instant fascination, an immediate terror which I could not analyse or define. The old man, too, had paused, and I saw that we were both a little withdrawn from the current of the crowd, which passed so obliviously intent on its own fears and allurements. Evidently realising that he had caught my attention, and perceiving the effect which he had upon me, the old man stepped nearer, smiling with a hint of some horrible malevolence, some nameless antique evil. I would have drawn back, but I was bereft of the power of movement. 
standing at my very side and searching me with the gaze of his coal-like orbs, he said to me in a low tone which could not have been overheard by any of the passers-by, I can see that you have a taste for horror, the dark and awful secrets of death, the equally dreadful mysteries of life, allure your interest. If you care to come with me, I will show you something which is the quintessence of all horror. You shall gaze on the head of Medusa with its serpent locks, that very head which was severed by the sword of Perseus. I was startled beyond measure by the strange words, uttered in accents which seemed to be heard by the mind rather than the ear. Somehow, unbelievable as this will seem, I have never been quite sure in what language he spoke. It may have been English, or it may have been Greek, which I know perfectly. The words penetrated my understanding without leaving any definite sense of their actual sound or linguistic nature, and of the voice itself. I know only that it was such as might issue from the very lips of Charon. It was guttural, deep, malign, with an echo of profound gulfs and sunless grottoes. Of course, my reason strove to dismiss the unaccountable feelings and ideas that had surged upon me. I told myself that it was all imagination, that the man was probably some queer sort of madman, or else was a mere trickster, or a showman who took this method of drumming up custom. But his aspect and his words were of necromantic strangeness. They seemed to promise, in a superlative degree, the weirdness and bizarrery which I had sought in former time, and of which, so far, I had found little hint in London. So I answered him quite seriously, Indeed, I should like to see the head of Medusa. But I have always understood that it was quite fatal to gaze upon her, that those who beheld her would turn immediately into stone. That can be avoided, returned my interlocutor. I will furnish you with a mirror and if you are truly careful, and succeed in restraining your curiosity, you can see her even as Perseus did. But you will have to be very circumspect, and she is really so fascinating, that few have been able to refrain from looking at her directly. Yes, you must be very cautious. <laughs> his laughter was more horrible even than his smile, and even as he laughed, he began to pluck my sleeve with a knotted hand that was wholly in keeping with his face, and which might well have gripped through untold ages the dark oars of the Stygian barge. "'Come with me. It is not far,' he said, "'and you will never have a second opportunity. I am the owner of the head, and I do not show it to many. But I can see that you are one of the few who are fitted.' appreciate it. It is inexplicable to me that I should have accepted his invitation. The man's personality was highly abhorrent. The feeling he aroused in me was a mixture of irresistible fear and repugnance. In all likelihood, he was a lunatic, perhaps a dangerous maniac, or, if not actually mad, was nurturing some ill design, some nefarious purpose to which I would lend myself by accompanying him. 
It was madness to go with him. It was folly even to listen to his words, and of course his wild claim concerning the ownership of the fabled Gorgon's head was too ridiculous even for the formality of disbelief. If such a thing could never existed, even in mythic Greece, it was certainly not to be found in present-day London, in the possession of a doubtful-looking old man. The whole affair was more preposterous than a dream. But nevertheless I went with him. I was under a spell, the spell of unknown mystery, terror, absurdity, and I could no more have refused his offer than a dead man could have refused the conveyance of Charon to the realms of Hades. My house is not far away, he assured me repetitiously, as we left the crowded street and plunged into a narrow, lightless alley. Perhaps he was right, though I have no precise idea of the distance which we traversed. The lanes and thoroughfares to which he led me were such as I could hardly have believed to exist in that portion of London, and I was hopelessly confused and astray in less than a minute. The houses were foul tenements, obviously of much antiquity, interspersed with a few decaying mansions that were doubtless even older, like remnants of some earlier city. I was struck by the fact that we met no one, apart from rare and furtive stragglers who seemed to avoid us. The air had grown extremely chill, and was fraught with unwanted odours that somehow served to reinforce the sensations of coldness and utter age. Above all was a dead, unchanging sky, with its catafalque of oppressive and superincumbent greyness. I could not remember the streets through which we passed, though I was sure that I must have traversed this section of the city before in my wanderings, and a queer perplexity was now mingled with my feeling of dismay and bemusement. It seemed to me that the old man was leading me into a clueless maze of unreality, of deception and dubiety, where nothing was normal or familiar or legitimate. The air darkened a little, as with the first encroachment of twilight, though it still lacked an hour of sunset time. In this premonitory dusk, which did not deepen, but became stationary in its degree of shadow, through which all things were oddly distorted and assumed illusory proportions, we reached the house which was our destination. It was one of the dilapidated mansions, and belonged to a period which I was unable to name, despite my extensive architectural knowledge. It stood a little apart from the surrounding tenements, and more than the dimness of the premature twilight seemed to adhere to its dark walls and lampless windows. It impressed me with a sense of vastness, yet I have never been quite sure concerning its exact dimensions, and I cannot remember the details of its façade, apart from the high and heavy door at the head of a flight of steps which were strangely worn as by the tread of incalculable generations. The door swung open without sound beneath the gnarled fingers of the old man, who motioned me to precede him. I found myself in a long hall, illumined by silver lamps of an antique type such as I had never before seen in actual use. I think there were ancient tapestries and vases, and also a mosaic floor, 
but the lamps are the only things which I remember clearly. They burned with white flames that were preternaturally still and cold, and I thought that they had always burned in this manner, unflickering, unreplenished, throughout a frozen eternity, whose days were in no wise different from its nights. At the end of the hall we entered a room that was similarly litten, and whose furniture was more than reminiscent of the classic. At the opposite side was an open door, giving on a second chamber, which appeared to be crowded with statuary, for I could see the outlines of still figures that were silhouetted or partially illumined by unseen lamps. "'Be seated,' said my host, indicating a luxurious couch. "'I will show you the head in a few minutes, but haste is unseemly when one is about to enter the very presence of Medusa.' I obeyed, but my host remained standing. He was paler and older and more erect than ever in the chill lamplight, and I sensed a sinewy, unnatural vigour, a diabolic vitality, which was terrifyingly incongruous with his extreme age. I shivered with more than the cold of the evening air in the dank mansion. Of course, I still felt that the old man's invitation was some sort of preposterous foolery or trickery, but the circumstances among which I found myself were unexplainable and uncanny. However, I mustered enough courage to ask a few questions. I am naturally surprised, I said, to learn that the Gorgon's head has survived into modern times. Unless the query is impertinent, will you not tell me how it came into your possession? <laughs> laughed the old man with a loathsome rictus. That is easily answered. I won the head from Perseus at a game of dice— when he was in his dotage. "'But how is that possible?' I countered. "'Perseus lived several thousand years ago.' "'Yes, according to your notation. But time is not altogether the simple matter which you believe it to be. There are shortcuts between the ages. There are deviations and overlappings among the epochs of which you have no idea. Also, I can see that you are surprised to learn that the head is in London, but London, after all, is only a name, and there are shiftings, abbreviations, and interchanges of space, as well as of time. I was amazed by his reasoning, but was forced to admit internally that it did not lack a certain logic. I see your point, I conceded, and now, of course, you will show me the Gorgon's head? In a moment but I must warn you again to be supremely careful, and also you must be prepared for its exceeding and overwhelming beauty, no less than for its horror. The danger lies, as you may well imagine, in the former quality. He left the room, and soon returned, carrying in his hand a metal mirror of the same period as the lamps. The face was highly polished, with a reflecting surface well-nigh equal to that of glass, but the back and handle, with their strange carvings of Loarquan-like figures that writhed in a nameless, frozen agony, were black with the tarnish of elder centuries. It might well have been the very mirror that was employed by Perseus. 
The old man placed it in my hands. Come, he said, and turned to the open door through which I had seen the crowded statuary. Keep your eyes on the mirror, he added, and do not look beyond it. You will be in grave peril as soon as you enter this door. He preceded me, averting his face from the portal, and gazing back across his shoulder with watchful orbs of malignant fire. My own eyes intent on the mirror, I followed. The room was unexpectedly large, and was lit by many lamps that depended from chains of wrought silver. At first sight, when I had crossed the sill, I thought that it was entirely filled with stone statues, some of them standing erect in postures of a painful rigour, and others lying on the floor in agonised eternal contortions. Then, moving the mirror a little, I saw that there was a clear space through which one could walk, and a vaster vacant space at the opposite end of the room, surrounding a sort of altar. I could not see the whole of this altar, because the old man was now in my line of mirrored vision. But the figures beside me, at which I now dared to peep without the mirror's intermediation, were enough to absorb my interest for the moment. They were all life-size, and they offered a most singular medley of historic periods. Yet it would seem that all of them, by the sameness of their dark material like a black marble, and the uniform realism and verisimilitude of their technique, might well have been sculptured by the same hand. There were boys and bearded men in the chitons of Greece. There were medieval monks and knights in armour. There were soldiers and scholars and great ladies of the Renaissance, of the Restoration. There were people of the eighteenth, the nineteenth, and twentieth centuries. And in every muscle, in every lineament of each, was stamped an incredible suffering, an unspeakable fear. And more and more as I studied them, a ghastly and hideous conjecture was formulated in my mind. The old man was at my elbow, leering and peering into my face with a demoniac malice. "'You're admiring my collection of statuary,' he said, "'and I can see that you are impressed by its realism. But perhaps you have already guessed that the statues are identical with their models.' These people are the unfortunates who were not content to see Medusa only in a mirror. I warned them, even as I have warned you, but the temptation was too much for them. I could say nothing. My thoughts were full of terror, consternation, stupefaction. But the old man told me the truth. Did he really possess anything so impossible and mythical as the Gorgon's head? Those statues were too lifelike, too veridical in all their features, in their poses that preserved a lethal fear, their faces marked with a deadly but undying torment. No human sculptor could have wrought them, could have reproduced the physiognomies and the costumes with a fidelity so consummate and so atrocious. Now, said my host, having seen those who were Overpowered by the beauty of Medusa, it is time for you to behold the Gorgon herself. He stepped to one side, eyeing me intently, and I saw in the metal mirror the whole of that strange altar which his body had partially intercepted from my view. 
It was draped with some funereal black fabric, and lamps were burning on each side with their tall and frozen flames. In the centre, on a broad paten of silver or electrum, there stood the veritable head, even as the ancient myths have depicted it, with vipers crawling and lifting among its matted locks. How can I delineate or even suggest that which is beyond the normal scope of human sensation or imagining? I saw in the mirror a face of unspeakably radiant pallor, a dead face from which there poured the luminous, blinding glory of celestial corruption, of superhuman bale and suffering. With lidless, intolerable eyes, with lips that were parted in an agonizing smile, she was lovely, she was dreadful beyond any vision ever vouchsafed to a mystic or an artist, and the light that emanated from her features was the light of worlds that lie too deep or too high for mortal perception. Hers was the dread that turns the marrow into ice, and the anguish that slays like a bolt of lightning. Long did I gaze in the mirror, with the shuddering awe of one who beholds the veilless countenance of a final mystery. I was terrified, appalled, and fascinated to the core of my being. For that which I saw was the ultimate death, the ultimate beauty. I desired, yet I did not dare to turn and lift my eyes to the reality whose mere reflection was a fatal splendor. The old man had stepped closer. He was peering into the mirror and watching me with furtive glances by turns. "'Is she not beautiful?' he whispered. Could you not gaze upon her forever? And do you not long to behold her without the intermediation of the mirror which hardly does her justice? I shivered at his words, and at something which I sensed behind them. No, no, I cried vehemently. I admit all that you say, but I will not gaze any longer, and I am not mad enough to let myself be turned into a stone image— I thrust the mirror into his hands as I spoke, and turned to leave, impelled by an access of overmastering fright. I feared the allurement of Medusa, and I loathed that evil ancient with a loathing that was beyond limit or utterance. The mirror clattered on the floor, as the old man dropped it and sprang upon me with a tigerish agility. He seized me with his knotted hands, and though I had sensed their sinewy vigour, I was not prepared for the demoniacal strength with which he whirled me about and thrust me toward the altar. Look! Look! he shrieked, and his voice was that of a fiend who urges the damned to some further pit of perdition. I had closed my eyes instinctively, but even through my lids I felt the searing radiance. I knew— I believed implicitly the fate which would be mine if I beheld Medusa face to face. I struggled madly but impotently against the grip that held me, and I concentrated all my will to keep my lids from lighting even by the breadth of an eyelash. Suddenly my arms were freed, and I felt the diabolic fingers on my brow groping swiftly to find my eyes. I knew their purpose— and knew also that the old man must have closed his own eyes to avoid the doom he had designed for me. I broke away. I turned. 
I grappled with him, and we fought insanely, frantically, as he strove to swing me about with one arm and tore at my shut eyelids with his other hand. Young as I am, and muscular, I was no match for him, and I swerved slowly toward the altar, with my head bent back till my neck was almost broken, in a vain effort to avoid the iron fumbling of his fingers. A moment more, and he would have conquered, but the space in which we fought was narrow, and he had now driven me back against a row of the stone figures, some of which were recumbent on the floor. He must have stumbled over one of these, for he fell suddenly with a wild, despairing cry, and released me as he went down. I heard him strike the floor, with a crash that was singularly heavy, a crash as of something harder and more massive and more ponderous than a human body. Still standing with shut eyes, I waited, but there was no sound and no movement from the old man. Bending toward the floor, I ventured to look between half-open lids. He was lying at my feet, beside the figure on which he had tripped, and I needed no second glance to recognize in all his limbs, in all his lineaments, the same rigidity and the same horror which characterized the other statues. Like them, he had been smitten instantaneously into an image of dark stone. In falling, he had seen the very face of Medusa, even as his victims had seen it, and now he would lie among them forever. Somehow, with no backward glance, I fled from the room. I found my way from that horrible mansion. I sought to lose it from sight and memory in half-deserted, mysterious alleys that were no legitimate part of London. The chill of ancient death was upon me. It hung in the web of timeless twilight, along those irrecognizable ways, around those innominable houses, and it followed me as I went. But at last, by what miracle I know not, I came to a familiar street, where people thronged in the lamplit dusk, and the air was no longer chill, except with a falling fog.